Pastor Rick is uh, out this weekend um, preaching up in Nebraska at Rod Gerson's church. You remember a few weeks back, um, Rod Gerson came and spoke to us, and so Rick is uh, returning the favor. So he gave me the privilege of opening up God's Word this morning. So I invite you to turn to uh, John chapter 1, and as you do so, let's bow our heads and pray one more time. Father, give us grace to be willing to submit, to be able to hear and understand your word, and I pray that uh, your spirit would be active, God, convicting, encouraging, building up, driving home the truths that we'll see here. Thank you for your word and the overwhelming nature of what it communicates. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So purpose statements are really very helpful for us. A lot of organizations use them. Some families even use them. They kind of give a, a north star of guidance for an undertaking, for a task, for whatever you have before you. Um, so, for example, you can know, at least in theory, that because we have put down as a church our mission statement, our purpose statement, as it were, that we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for His glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life, as regulated by the Word of God, because we have put that down, then you can, you can know that as leadership, as a church body, that's, that's what we're about. That's in a nutshell what we're striving for. That's what our, our objective is. That's what informs our, our, our choices and our, our decisions and our directions. The Gospel of John has a very clear purpose statement as well. I'm going to read it to you. I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen in John chapter 20. We're going to read this purpose statement, and then we're going to go back and trace it through the whole book of John. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 says this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's more he could have written down. Then he says, But these have been written, referring to all the previous 20 chapters, these have been written so that, here's the purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Life is the goal of this book. Not physical life. It was written to people who had physical life to be able to read it and understand it but eternal life, salvation and eternity, enjoying the blessing and presence and reward of God Almighty, that life. And how does John say we obtain that? Belief. We believe. But belief is so subjective in our day and age that it's a, it's a little bit of a hazardous term. But what John presents throughout his gospel is very objective and concrete. It's not, a, it's not an abstract belief that leads to life eternal, but it is the defined belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that leads to, as he says here, life in his name. So John has written this entire gospel for that reason, that the reader would read it and as a result of reading, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So all through John, this, this belief is a striking theme. It's a central idea of his writing. He writes of the content of belief. He reveals the quality of belief. He relays the results of belief 
all seeking to help us understand what kind of belief is it that leads to life. So this morning we're going to do a flyover survey of the Gospel of John for the sake of really trying to get a a full understanding of this saving belief, this belief that leads to life. I want to encourage you to see as we go through, take your your own set of beliefs and don't, don't take it for granted, but line it up with what John lays out for us and see how does your belief compare to what John says is the belief that leads to life, eternal life. It's a good thing to know. It's a good thing to be sure of. It's a good thing to have an accurate picture of. So be careful as we go through this this morning. Listen to the Scripture, to God's Word, and allow it to speak to your heart this morning. Each passage that we're going to look at can be kind of considered a facet of the jewel, a facet of the jewel of truly saving belief. It's a many-faceted jewel, and I don't have time to cover them all, but we're going to cover as many as we can. Some of these facets are positive, what belief is, and some of these facets are, are negative, what belief, belief that leads to life is not. But they all contribute to a fuller understanding of the biblical concept of saving belief. Now, if you think back a couple weeks ago, Pastor Rick preached on, um, uh, on body life, and in culminating that, he gave, he gave 12 points. Correct. So, Pastor Rick is my is my um, he's my preaching professor and he's my preaching mentor. And he confessed that in that moment he broke all the rules of preaching and homiletics. And so I take that as a cue to say, "Go, well, I can go ahead and break the rules too." And so we are going to see fourteen facets of the jewel. Fourteen facets of the jewel of saving belief. I actually trimmed that down from fifteen in the first service. The first facet we're going to look at is this. Belief that leads to life is a belief in the name of Jesus, and it's crucial to being a child of God. This belief is crucial to being a child of God. Look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. This light is known as He. He was in the world. It's Jesus, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Boy, John is setting the tone right here for the rest of the book. He's given such a theological statement, even in just those few verses, you could spend a lot of time there. But the main point right here is that the the, the crux of belief is crucial to being a child of God. Many think that, well, I'm I'm a person. Right? God made me. They might be willing to exist, uh, concede that God is the creator, and so God made me, so I'm his child. That, that, that just simple existence means you have a favored position of being in the family. But that's not a right belief. That is a faulty belief. John makes clear here that to be a child of God, you must believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's crucial. 
If you do not believe in the name of Jesus Christ, then you are not a child of God. And when you say the name of Jesus Christ, as, as, written, as written here in this kind of a context, it's, it's taking everything about Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he taught, and wrapping it all up in this idea of the name, the person, the being of Jesus Christ. You must believe in him to be a child of God. It's crucial. John has set the stage here. He has set the stage with this, this, this first chunk of verses as far as the main tension of even the whole book, that, that there is light and there is darkness, and, and, there, and the darkness did not know the light, and there's a creator, and there are the creatures, and the creatures did not recognize the creator. And yet in the midst of that rebellion and in the midst of that lack of acknowledgement, the creator, the light reached out and offered sonship, offered, offered joining of the family to, to a select number of those who were in the darkness, to a select number of those who were rebelling. And the vehicle for that selection is belief. Belief in Jesus Christ is what brings you into the family of God. But what needs to be believed, uh, more, more than just simple facts, more than just historical events, the second facet here is um, belief that leads to life, and an understanding of that belief is that, that the belief that results from the miracles of Jesus is not sufficient in and of itself. Look at chapter 2, John chapter 2, and I'm simply trying to just whet your, whet your appetite for even reading the whole book of John and understanding the wash of this theme of belief that rolls over you as you read John and his book. In chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding and they ran out of wine. And Jesus sees over, over in the corner, there's, there's six water pots. These hold 20 or 30 gallons. And so Jesus, knowing they're out of wine, he, he silently, via an expression of his power, turns all that water, let's call it 150 gallons, into the best wine of the night. It says in verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Believed in his name. They observed the signs he was doing. See, people observe facts. They observe statements of Scripture, and maybe they say, yeah, I can't argue with that. Jesus really did those things. That guy was blind. That guy was lame, and Jesus did heal him. I believe that. But that's not belief that leads to life. That's not sufficient. If you, if you look in verse 23... Of chapter 2, it says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs, so there's belief that, that resulted from the signs, the miracles which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew what was going to happen 15, 16, 17 chapters later. He knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew their hearts, that belief in the facts of his power was not sufficient to change them from being sinners and enemies of God to being children of God. Mental agreement that Jesus lived and that Jesus did amazing things, miracles is not enough for you and I to be saved, is not enough 
to say, I believe that Jesus did those things. That's not the full picture of belief. So as the apostle then continues to just rotate that jewel as he writes the gospel, we get a glimpse of what must be believed beyond even these simple facts. For example, you have to believe in the effect of Jesus' crucifixion as the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Of course, we had to go to chapter 3. And listen to verse 16, but even before and beyond that, in the context of what could be the most famous verse in the Bible, listen to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then here's the explanation of that statement. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus here, and he's talking to him about the new birth, the, the spirit-engendered new birth, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. And, and how does it happen? And Jesus points back to Deuteronomy. And this, uh, this occasion where God is punishing the Israelites, and he has sent venomous snakes among them, and the snakes are biting people, and the people are dying and looking for a way to save them from that death. Moses fashions a bronze serpent and puts it on a pole, and he, and he lifts up that bronze serpent before the people, and he says, look here to be saved. Believe in the efficacy of of this provision that God has given you to be saved from the death that these snakes are bringing to you. And they look and they're saved. If they look, they don't die. And so Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus here that his being lifted up on the cross has a similar saving effect. But the people have to look to him, look to his sacrifice, look to his work on the cross in belief that that effect is going to save them from their sins. And the impact of looking on and belief is the difference between eternal death and eternal life. You see, all people live eternally. We didn't exist eternally, not before, but we will from this point on live eternally. After physical death comes judgment, and then existence continues forever and ever and ever. Some exist in eternal death, which is a state of punishment. And some exist in eternal life, which is a state of blessing and joy. And the difference between those two is belief in the person of Jesus Christ and looking to him on the cross and saying, I look, I look there for my salvation. I look there for my life. Nowhere else but there. Jesus, the Son of God, this is John 3, 16, was given by God the Father so that he might die on the cross in order to save those who believe, and you must believe this. It's not, as Jesus says in John 8, if you don't believe that, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Failure, failure to believe in Jesus and his work on the cross means death in your sins. What else does the belief look like? It looks like this. The belief in Jesus Christ is synonymous with obedience. 
John the Baptist gets questioned about, are you, are you the Messiah? Are you the, the one who's been sent? And he answers negatively. Instead, he points to the Son as the one sent from God. Look in chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 34. He speaks then of the Son who was sent. He says, for he whom God has sent, he speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But... He who does not believe the Son will not see life. No, that's not what it says. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. A lot of people don't like to talk about the wrath of God, but it's there. And the wrath of God remains on people who fail to obey the Son. And obedience is the parallel, is the synonym, is the, is the consequence of belief. Belief that leads to life will result in obedience in your life now. Because the Son speaks for the Father. What Jesus speaks, God speaks. And belief in Him and what He says results in eternal life. But on the flip side, John equates belief with obedience. I think the Apostle John put this in his narrative for a reason. He's adding that facet to this crown jewel of saving belief. And he's making clear that if your belief in the person of Jesus Christ doesn't result in a life pattern of obedience, then you need to question your belief in his genuineness. If your pattern of life is one of disobedience to Jesus and his teachings, as well as the, the sum of his word, the Bible... Okay, because these are his words, and we just said, um, the, he whom God has sent, Jesus, he speaks the words of God. So to disobey the words of God is an act of disbelief. And if that's the pattern of your life, then, then you can only think that the wrath of God remains on you, because that's what it says. He who does not obey the Son will not have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But if your claims of, love, of belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ lead to a pattern of life that is obedient to his words and to his will, then you can rest assured of your eternal life. Jesus himself says something similar and familiar in chapter 14. Because belief in him and his work on the cross engenders love as a response. And he says, if you love me, if you believe in me and who I am and what I've done, you'll love me. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You can't, you can't split the two. You can't say, I believe, and yet I don't obey. You can't say, no, 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 no. You don't, 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 don't question my belief just because my life is one of, of disobedience. Oh, those are separate. You can't say that. Now, the Bible doesn't speak of perfection. The Bible doesn't say you have to be perfect to, to be saved because the perfection of one who is saved is found in the perfection of Jesus Christ. But a pattern of disobedience, a pattern of obedience, those are reflections of a disbelief or a belief. The Bible does say that a saving belief in Jesus Christ will result in a life that is typified by obedience to the Savior, and this in growing degrees. He gives another glimpse at this jewel as he helps us see clearly that the, that the belief that leads to life 
One facet of that is that it's belief that Jesus is the Savior, the one who saves. And we start to see more of the character of Jesus. Who is this one that the writer of John wants us to believe in? You remember the, the incident with the woman at the well, right? And all, all, all the dialogue with, with her, and then she goes back to the, the people of her city, and she tells them all that Jesus said, and the citizens of her city come to believe as well, not just because of what she believes, but because they hear the words of Jesus and are convinced that they, that they are true, that he speaks truth. Look in chapter 4, verse 39. After that interaction, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. There's a recognition that the world needs saving. There's a recognition that there is sin and that that sin, as we said earlier, just a minute ago, brings the wrath of God abiding on you. And the one who saves, those who believe, is Jesus. Jesus is the definitive article, only Savior. Those citizens heard Jesus' words and as a result came to know and believe he was the Savior of the world. And later on, Jesus makes very specific claims of exclusivity regarding this. He allows no other way. He allows for no other alternative, no other, well, hey, that's okay for you. This works for this person and this works for this person. He doesn't allow that. That becomes very offensive and divisive as he goes. He says in chapter 14, though, that I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claims to be the exclusive Savior available to mankind. And saving belief believes that that is the truth. A saving belief, a belief that leads to life, is also belief that Jesus is God. You can't, you can't divorce the man and some of his deeds and his teachings and some of the words that he says, you can't have part of Jesus and not all of Jesus in your acceptance and belief. Jesus says things that people find offensive and divisive, causes them to even walk away from him. And one of them is the fact that he says, I, I am God. Look in chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. The Jews are mad at him again because he's healing people and doing wonderful things on the Sabbath. And they accuse him, and he answers them, my father is working, in verse 17, 517, he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Look at verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jewish leaders were so offended and indignant that they were seeking to kill him. But we can't just write Jesus off in this regard and say, oh, you know, he was a little dis disillusioned. He was a little deluded about this, but look at all the great things over here that he said. Let's follow that. If I stood up and I said to you, I am God, you would count me out. You would run me out the door and you would say, don't believe a word that joker says. Jesus says very clearly, I am 
God. And a belief that leads to life believes that statement, believes that fact. And then, as I said, leads to, the, leads to, uh, to following the implications and the ramifications of that belief. See, it eliminates any notion that Jesus was, was a good teacher. And, and, that's, and that's it. No, no, no. Jesus is either a nut job and a liar, or he was God in the flesh who came and offered something no one else could offer. No one but God could offer forgiveness of sin, for it is God who is the judge of sin. And Jesus says, I am God, and I have come to offer forgiveness through myself and through my sacrifice. But with that offer of salvation comes the recognition of that truth that Jesus is God and all the implications of that. Because if Jesus is God, then first there is a God and Jesus is him, but that also means that Jesus is the creator and that he created us. And so there is the, the onus upon us to obey and submit and to worship and to recognize the position of who he is. And we can't just say, I oh, was a good teacher and then just go on about our lives and believe what we want. If he is creator, if he is God, and then we are his creatures, and that ripples out into all those, all those, those effects of, of worship and obey me and submit to me and reverence me and follow me. Jesus was the God-man. We must believe that is true, or our belief will not lead to life, because that's a false belief a false belief that makes Jesus out to be a liar if we do not acknowledge that he is God. Another facet is that belief in Jesus is the only requirement for salvation. Look in John chapter 6. The people are getting excited by the provision of the food, and they see that as, 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 as the, the blessing and, and, and eternal provision that they want to pursue, and so they, they ask him, what should we do in verse 28 so that we may have the, that we will work the works of God? Listen to Jesus' reply. He answers and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The Jews basically want to know how to attain unto, uh, unto salvation and unto eternal life. They want to work the works of God in order to have that everlasting food that just keeps on coming. And Jesus' reply is simple. Believe. How often do we want to supplement that? How often do we want to take away from that? How often do we want to somehow add ourselves and our works to that? There is no supplementing, though. The work of God that leads to eternal life and provision is belief. Specifically, though, belief in the one whom God has sent, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, God himself. And you can see how it's all kind of stacking up here as John reveals layer after layer about what is belief that leads to life. Remember, that's why he's writing these things. That's what he said in chapter 20. I write these things so that you may believe in the person of Jesus and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he's given us a full picture of what is that belief that leads to life. The facets on the jewel of saving belief are glinting and shining. They're getting more and more brilliant as John goes, and yet they're also becoming more and more difficult to hang on to, more and more difficult to, for, for the people around to accept. 
This is no will-o'-the-wisp belief, and that's evident in the following verses, because in the statements and claims of Jesus that He makes, He drives many away because He's so insistent that salvation is only granted to those who believe in Him, and it's His provision alone. And so many of the followers, after, after, the, after some of the sayings of Jesus, many of the Jesus groupies at that point couldn't believe all that Jesus required and couldn't believe the, the, the exclusivity of it and the, and the requirement that Jesus was placing on their belief, and so they left Him. It happens in the end of chapter 6, starting in verse 60. They say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And they start to leave. But look in verse 68. After Jesus said to the 12, he says, you don't want to go away also, do you? Here's what saving belief says. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? He, he doesn't deny that it's hard statements to understand or to believe. He doesn't deny that this is a paradigm shift. He doesn't deny, uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, I can't believe those people are walking away. All he says is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. As hard as it can be sometimes, as difficult as the truths may be at points, belief in the person and work of Jesus is what saves. And that cannot be twisted, lessened, added to. That's the only requirement. Believe in Jesus, all that He is, all that He did, all that He, all that he taught. And then John starts to show uh, some of the results of, of a saving belief. We see that uh, belief in Jesus leads to worship of Him. Flip over to chapter 9. This is kind of frustrating because even in just that skip right there, we're skipping other, other times, but I just don't think I could have gotten through a 19-point or a 22-point sermon. So in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who's been born blind. And there's controversy over this. Naturally, the leaders of the, of the synagogue are upset because you know, Jesus broke the Sabbath again, never mind the fact that he healed a man who was born blind, but you know, he broke the Sabbath again, so they're all worked up about it, and they question the character of Jesus as a result, really as a result of their unbelief. But the man who had been healed doesn't doubt the character of the one who healed him. And we see a contrast in these and, and the results of their states of being, of states of belief, starting in verse 35. The Jewish leaders put the blind, used to be blind man, out of the synagogue. They basically excommunicate him. And in verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they'd put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And there's all sorts of associations there in that title with, with, with Savior, with, with God himself, with one who has authority and power. And the man answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who's talking with you. It's me, Jesus says. It's me. Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, if you remember the converse with Dr. Block, he, walked, he worked through those words of, of worship. And so literally this man says, Lord, I believe. And he falls down and he prostrates himself before Jesus and he gives him honor as only God is due. But the unbelief of the leader stands in stark contrast to that. Jesus goes on, he says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. 
The self-righteous religiosity of the Pharisees is actually blindness. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Be cautious, brothers and sisters. Be cautious that you're not blind this morning, thinking you see. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin because then they, they would have seen. But since you say we see, your sin remains. The true belief of the man who was healed led to worship, and the disbelief of the Pharisees led to questioning and indignation and self-sufficiency and pride. So true saving belief in the person of Jesus will cause us to fall before Him in worship, both literally and figuratively as, as, a, as a description of our lives. The ninth facet is this, belief in Jesus as the agent of a literal and eternal resurrection. We all know the story of Lazarus. Jesus' friend got sick. Jesus was notified and said, your, your, your friend Lazarus is sickened to death. Jesus says, well, we'll just hang here for a few days. In the meantime, Lazarus dies. And then Jesus decides to go ahead and visit Lazarus and his family. And he comes and he interacts with Martha. And in John chapter 11, listen to this interaction. John chapter 11, verse 25. So keep in mind that Martha has just lost her brother and looks and sees Jesus as the one who had the power to prevent that, and yet he waited. Ah, the pain of that. The hurt of that. In verse, and Martha says that in 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He's saying physical death, you'll live. And then you'll never die. It's an eternal life. Look at his, the ending of what he says in verse 26. Do you believe this? Her response, verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life, and that belief in him leads to life eternal, even if death overtakes us. And he drives that home at a... At a, at a, at a a very sensitive point in Martha's life, right? Her brother has just died, and he says, in this moment, what do you believe about me? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And her response encompasses much of what we've already covered. So the question is, can we say with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe because Jesus then goes to back that claim up, right? He goes to the tomb. The, the, the stone is rolled away. And he stands there and he calls out with a voice that only God has. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the used-to-be-dead man walks out. 
And you can see, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But do we believe that? That Jesus has that kind of power? Because saving belief will agree with this truth and rest in it. And you, you, can, you can run down those implications into situations that we have trouble relating to, but there's a part of this that, that helps us understand even how martyrs in the Middle East can embrace death for faith because they, they believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that is so crucial. The next facet is a belief that leads to self-sacrifice. See, Jesus is not very good at the whole seeker-sensitive movement. He walks around proclaiming salvation and his offer of salvation, and he starts offending people, and he even kind of drives them away, saying, you don't really get it. And they walk away disappointed because he didn't just allow them to come to them on, his, on their own terms. John chapter 12, 23 to 26 he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying, I'm going to die. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Think of where he just said he was going to go. I'm going to die. And then he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also, because I'm the resurrection and the life. And even if you follow me unto death... You can know what will happen. You can believe what will happen. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He says other statements throughout the gospel, like you have, you, if, you, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross. And this is not some nice little figure that we put on the wall. This is a, 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 a tool of torture and death and punishment. And he's saying, take up your cross because that's what I'm bearing. So if you want to be one of mine, take it up. That's the cost. And belief that leads to life will acknowledge and recognize that cost and then say, yes, I will pay that cost. As many of the brothers and sisters around the world are even now paying on a daily basis right now. Recant or die. Recant or see your family be killed. I can't because I believe in the person and work of Jesus and that even death is no barrier for him because he is the resurrection and the life. And so you accept that self-sacrifice, whether, whether it's a sacrifice of a relationship or it's an emotional sacrifice or even a physical sacrifice. Belief that leads to life accepts self-sacrifice. It's also a belief that leads to love for other believers. John chapter 13, 34 to 35, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By this, all men will know that you follow me. By this, all men will know that you believe in me and what I teach, that you love one another. So as you look around at your church family here, you have to ask yourself, where's my heart towards these people? You can't live in isolation in an island with a citizenship of one or three or four, closely guarded, it's, it's, brothers, it's, it's believers. True saving faith will result in love for one another. And that love desires their good. As you look around, you say, does my heart desire the good of these people, both now and for eternity? 
the unity of Christ, is that enough to help you overcome differences of temperament and personality and preference? Because saving belief in Jesus results in a love for one another, and we know what that love is like because of other writings. Love prefers them, puts others' needs first. It is patient, it's kind, it's not jealous, it doesn't brag, it's not arrogant, it doesn't act unbecomingly, it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. That is what wells up within someone who has belief that leads to life. Someone who believes in the person and work of Jesus Christ will find that love welling up within them and being expressed to the church family around them. And that is how people will know that you believe in your disciple of Christ. And so if that love is not in there, then what? What's the implication? That's a, a striking one, a convicting one. On an encouraging note, there is a, there is a, a facet of, here, of, of the belief in this, this. Belief that leads to life is a belief that leads to comfort and rest now. Chapter 14. Jesus has just explained to his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm laying down my life for you, and I'm, I'm leaving. And Their world is starting to get shaken. The rug is starting to get pulled out from under them. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Everything you've poured yourselves into for three years, it's going to feel like it just got taken away from you. Don't let your heart be troubled. There's an answer there's a solution when you feel like life and its circumstances are threatening your well-being, threatening you. And it's this. Believe. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. You see, he's making promises. He's saying, he's saying, I'm giving you comfort and rest. Things are going to rock your life, rock your world. Believe. Believe in me. Believe in my teachings. And don't let your hearts be troubled. We can also see, as John helps us see, that um, this belief is not some some perfect gem, a flawless, you know, perfection where, where there's, no, there's no doubt, there's no struggle, there's no hardship to actually believe. Because some of these are hard things. Some of these are hard things to believe and to live out. And we see in chapter 16, verse 9, uh, 29 to 33, that a belief that, that leads to life is a belief that it doesn't preclude struggles and doubts. His disciples in verse 29 say, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and not using a figure of speech. We get it. Now we know that you know all things. We have no need for anyone to question you. And by this, we believe that you came from God. You'd think Jesus would give him an attaboy and say, Hey, you've arrived. Now he says, Do you now believe? Ah, behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. In a moment of struggle and doubt and, 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 and fright and terror, they scatter. They leave the one whom they just said, we, we get it. We believe it. 
But Jesus doesn't castigate them. He doesn't rebuke them for the, for the coming weakness. He, re, he reassures them. He says in verse 33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus is so gracious. A saving belief isn't perfect. A ripple, a tremor, a, a hiccup, a swerve, those don't invalidate faith. There are struggles and doubts, and, and Jesus, in his grace, knows that. And he promises peace and overcoming as a reassurance for the times of those struggle and doubt. And the 14th, only two minutes late so far, is this belief that leads to happiness. Happiness. Belief that leads to life eternal is a belief that leads to happiness. Now, uh, now. We, we now are mentioned in the Bible several times. We who follow, who, who, who seek to follow Christ, who believe in His name and seek to follow Him and His ways are mentioned multiple times. And one of them is here in chapter 20. We come to the point where poor doubting Thomas gets his reputation of saying, I've got to, I've got to stick my, my fingers in his nail holes and, his, and my, my hand in, his, in, the, in the hole in his side to really believe. And, and Jesus appears, and, and Thomas does that, and then Jesus belie- uh, Thomas believes. He says, my Lord and my God. Chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed, happy. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. We have not put our finger into Jesus' wounds. We have not put our hand into his side. And yet we are faced with the opportunity of not having seen to believe the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we do so, then we're happy. We are blessed as a result. How, how, how can we not be happy? God in Christ offers forgiveness of sins, assurance of eternal life, his protection and provision throughout life here and now. All of that he offers to rebellious and sinful creatures who are his enemies. He offers those to rebel wretches, and since they all would naturally refuse that offer, as, as the very beginning, John 1, 12, he gives that, not by the will of men, not by the will of flesh, but by the very will of God. And so he reaches out and he extends that to offer to people, and then he draws people to himself. So wretched and so undeserving, and that, that is the saving faith that brings us a blessing if we believe. And that kind of happiness, that kind of blessedness transcends the, 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 the happy stuff of life that most people are dependent on for, for that sensation of happiness. So where do we go with this? You have to examine our, uh, your own faith, your own belief. John has presented, and I've, I've skipped a bunch, and so go back and read it and just put your radar on for all those iterations of what it is to believe. And he's presented this fully orbed, this fully faceted jewel of belief. And we have to ask, do we believe that way? Maybe you have no belief Maybe you're here and, and, and you don't even claim anything about Jesus. 
But today, Jesus calls out to you through his word. He says, believe in me. Believe in all that I am. Believe in all that I say. And come out from under God's wrath and into life. Today is the day of salvation. You do not know if you will have tomorrow. You do not know that. So today is the day to make the choice to say, I forsake my sin. I confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the one who, who, who has borne my punishment on the cross. And I confess him as the one who is resurrected and who will resurrect me. And my faith is in him for my eternal life. Surrender to him as Lord and Savior. And then maybe you have belief, but it doesn't match up with all that. The implications don't trickle out into your life in the fullness of what John describes. Maybe you intellectually give assent to facts, but your life, your heart, doesn't seem to be a response. Jesus cries out to you through all of this. The Gospel of John, the writer, he says, believe in such a way that your heart and life is changed. Believe the truths of Jesus and who he is and what he's done in such a way that worship and obedience and peace and joy and assurance and happiness are the overflow of that belief. And then maybe you recognize that fully orbed jewel of saving belief in your own heart and life. And if you do, then rejoice because it's not your work. It's God's work within you. This is the Holy Spirit's work within each one of us. It's something that God called you to, awakened you to, and keeps you in. His gift to you, his gift of life, free gift of grace, and we cling to that. We rejoice in it. We walk every day in light of that, and we pursue eternity because of it. That's the belief that leads to life. That's what John wants us to know. So I encourage you to take it seriously and examine yourself against it and ask, is that my belief? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your grace. Thank you for sending your son so that whoever would believe in him and his work on the cross would be saved, saved from the justly deserved punishment of your wrath forever and ever, huh, to be brought into life and life eternal and blessing in your presence forever and ever. What a gift. To you be all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.